This week on The Roundtable, a major report says the devastating effects of global warming will only get worse if we don't act now. Plus, why nonprofits in Chula Vista have stopped working with the city? And activists say the ongoing investigation into the murders of two Tijuana journalists lack transparency. I'm Jade Hindman, and this is KPBS Roundtable. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. The effects of climate change brought on by human actions are already threatening lives today and will have a devastating impact on the well-being of all life on the planet during the lifetimes of children alive now. Think about that. But it is not too late to act. That is the message of a major report published this week by dozens of scientists for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. If urgent action to reduce emissions is not taken, the report says the heat waves, wildfires, megastorms, flooding, and other devastating effects of warming will only worsen. Joining me to talk about this is KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, welcome. Thank you. There have been several reports published in recent weeks about the impacts of climate change on wildfires and sea levels. Put this latest report into some context for us. What is the significance of this report from the IPCC? Well, I think that one thing that this report did, it stated unequivocally that we are already feeling the impacts of climate change. It can be seen in our daily life and that the planet still has a window of opportunity to change things, but that window is now small. So uh, I think the thing that the scientists uh, around the world are saying is that there is still a chance to keep things from getting horrible, uh, but we need to move quickly and we need to move uh, at scale. In other words, the solutions have to happen rapidly and they have to uh, be far-reaching. Scientific understanding of the effects of climate change is ongoing. What new insights did you learn from this report? Well, I, there are a lot of things in there, and I think that um, uh, climate climate change is kind of like this big puzzle. We don't quite see where all of the pieces fit and where everything uh, locks together. And and I think science is trying and has been over the last 25 years trying to put those pieces together so we can understand exactly where it is we are going to go. One thing that uh, I've noticed in in much of the research that's been done over the last five years is that um, scientists have really sort of woken up uh, to the speed of the change. It's not something that's happening at this glacial crawl anymore. It's going fairly rapidly. And I think that's evidenced in the extreme weather that the planet is experiencing. I think it's evidenced in um, a lot of other things as well that we can see in our daily life. Uh, Here in San Diego, the ocean is in our backyard, right along with scientists studying its role in climate change, which you describe as cascading. Talk about that. Sure. The ocean has really worked overtime, I think, in the last 
30 to 40 years to absorb the extra carbon that we've been putting into the atmosphere uh, since the industrial age. And it's been pretty successful, I think, at uh, absorbing that carbon and moderating the climate itself around the ocean. The ocean is sort of like this regulator. It covers 70% of the surface of the planet, and it helps the planet kind of stabilize to keep from going too much in one direction or another direction. And it's sort of begun to reach its capacity to help with that regulation. And I think that's why we're seeing uh, a number of different things going on uh, in the ocean water. Sea levels are going up. Um, these are the cascading effects. Uh, heat uh, is uh, that the ocean is absorbing is changing the ecosystems in the ocean. That's impacting food supplies. Um, so there are a lot of things that are tied into that a uh, really complex system uh, that uh, are going to affect the planet in, in a lot of different ways and in ways that will be more extreme um, as the, the climate changes. How would you characterize how San Diego scientists are contributing to our understanding of climate change? Yeah, I think that the big scientific effort, uh, and this comes from many scientists, not just here in San Diego or in the state of California or the United States or the world. I think that what scientists are doing when they look at climate change is they want to understand exactly what the change is, how quickly it's going to happen, and what it means for the systems uh, on the planet that we rely on. Um, they're still uh, working, I think, uh, diligently uh, to put those pieces together because um, that knowledge will allow them to design computer models that are better at predicting what's ahead. And when we can predict what's ahead, the scientists that I've talked to say uh, it'll help public policy people make the adjustments that they need to make. Um, you know, billions of people in coastal zones across the planet are going to be dealing with climate change issues related to the ocean. Billions of people uh, on the planet are going to be dealing with heat-related issues linked to climate change, whether that's in the form of drought or whether that's in the form of things like wildfires. And so scientists want to understand what these systems are, how they interact, and what we can say about what's to come so that uh, I think uh, we can do what, what they're calling is, is becoming more resilient, uh, being able to adapt to the changes that are coming. Let's talk more about the urgent call for action from the scientists in the IPCC report. President Biden gave his State of the Union address this week, and the subject of climate change notably received little mention. The United States has recommitted to the Paris Climate Accord, but greenhouse gas emissions continue to surge in the U.S., threatening that goal. What is the policy problem as you see it? Well, I think the scientists in the IPCC report um, actually laid this out very clearly. And what, what they're saying now is that uh, the threat is upon us. We are in the midst of climate change. We are already dealing with the impacts. And our window for change uh, is getting smaller. The Paris Climate Accord, uh, you know, that was negotiated more than a decade ago. And um, most of the voluntary uh, changes uh, in that accord uh, were weighted toward the end of a 15-year period. Um, so I, I think that they were trying to create a sense of urgency where people recognize that it's uh, the scope and the scale of the solutions that we need right now are going to need to be extraordinary 
if the planet wants to avoid some of the most severe outcomes that, that we could see. You know, uh, scientists don't know exactly when things could get really, really bad, but they can say for sure that um, if there's no change in the way that we live our lives and the amount of carbon that we put into the atmosphere now, if that continues on the same path it is, um, that will happen sooner rather than later, and the impact will be more severe uh, th as opposed to less severe. What they're saying is if we take action in this small window that's left to us now, uh, and we do it on a scale that has a big enough impact, we can sort of moderate some of those changes. But they're also acknowledging at the same time that some of those things that uh, we're already experiencing, uh, it's too late uh, to eliminate those impacts or roll them back. We're going to be living with them. California is at the forefront of climate policy, but is that enough? Well, I think in some cases not. And let me give you an example. This is uh, something that the state of California has decided to do by executive decree. They want to stop the sale of fossil fuel cars as new cars by 2035, which is uh, not very far down the road, uh, but stop that sale. And the, the idea is, is that uh, it eliminates the automobile emissions that go into the atmosphere that kind of feed this cycle of, of climate warming. Uh, but the thing you have to realize is, uh, that year, 2035, when this policy would go into effect, it only affects new cars. And there will be millions of cars uh, on the road in California that will be spewing carbon out of their tailpipes, not only uh, until 2035, but well beyond 2035. People aren't just going to stop driving fossil fuel cars that year. That's going to be a transitionary thing. And I think that's something that the, the, the scientists in the IPCC report um, are pointing to when they say the solutions need to be uh, uh, more immediate and they need to come at scale. So that's just kind of uh, a recognition that um, I think California understands and the California's policymakers understand what the situation is, but um, we're not quite to a point where people who are looking at the climate say, you know, that's a good track for the state to be on. A lot for us to think about and hopefully put action behind. I've been speaking with KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, thank you. Thank you, Jade. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. As activists wait for justice to be served in connection to the murders of two Tijuana journalists in January, they say a lack of transparency from Mexican authorities is not inspiring confidence that it will be. KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis has been reporting on the larger issues these murders raise, and he joins me now with more. Gustavo, welcome. Thank you, Jade. Mexican authorities announced 13 arrests in connection with the murders of journalist Lourdes Maldonado and Margarito Martinez in the last few weeks. Uh, what can you say about how Mexican authorities are prioritizing these murder investigations? Well, the, the murders prompted a lot of attention, uh, not just within journalism circles, but within all of Mexico, and really it was a global um, response, right? It, it's worth keeping in mind that 
uh, Laurelis and, and Margarito were just two of five journalists in Mexico that were killed in the month of January. And, and Mexico has, for a few years now, been one of the most dangerous places for reporters. Um, so in response to that very public outcry, the federal government and the Baja California state government have prioritized uh, these cases, uh, again, at least publicly, right, with strong statements about uh, wanting to bring their killers to justice. What was the reaction to these murders in Mexico and around the world? Well, the reaction was was, was outrage, um, more so than sadness, really. Uh, even for, for the people who knew the the slain journalist, it was uh, their their reaction was enough is enough, right? That this has had been happening for a long time. Specifically in Baja California, I know there was a lot of criticism to journalist protection programs in the state of Baja California that clearly were not working. So the the reaction was was really a call to action, a call for justice and a call for, for more protection uh, in Mexico. Hmm. Activists in Mexico, though, are critical of the government for a lack of transparency around these cases. What transparency are they looking for but not getting? Well, I think they want a similar level of transparency that that we would get here in the United States, so or really that they have in Mexico for other types of criminal cases. Uh, there's been this kind of repeating pattern emerging in Mexico with high-profile cases where the authorities will, will make big announcements about the arrests, right? In this case, uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador himself, the president of Mexico, went on national television and announced in a press conference the arrest of uh, the suspected murders of Lourdes Maldonado and called it a step towards justice and a fight against impunity. Um, and that's all well and good and should be applauded, but the, the problem is that since then there really hasn't been that much information out there, right? I think local journalists in Mexico would like similar level of transparencies that we get here, right? When the authorities make an arrest, and uh, prosecutors charged, there, there's evidence that is made public, right? There are court records. Uh, you know who the attorney is representing the defendant. Uh, you can interview that attorney, or they can choose not to, but you at least know who they are and who to make a contact. Um, right now, we know that people were arrested, but we don't know what evidence the government had. We don't know what the motives were. There's been talk about guns being found. Uh, particularly with the 10 men that were arrested um, with suspicion of killing Margarito Martinez. But even in that press conference of the arrest, the prosecutor said that they hadn't yet tested the weapons to see if they had been used in any crime, let alone Margarito's murder. So really what they're asking is, great, you arrested somebody, now follow up and, and really you know prove that you have a case and prove that you got the correct people. And, and that will bring about justice, not just announcing a big arrest. You know, you mentioned repeating patterns, but is that lack of transparency unusual in all Mexican police investigations? It, it is and it isn't. Um, there are some things that have kind of stood out according to Tijuana journalists that I've talked to, uh, the the most obvious one, the most glaring one, is that they've been barred from being in the courthouse during the the proceedings, uh, which is unusual. Like the, these 
these reporters cover crime for a living. They know what it's normally like. So to be told, no, you can't cover this, that raises some eyebrows. There's also the fact that uh, Sonia de Anda, the, the reporter I talked to, who's also a member of the, the journalism collective there in Tijuana, said it's not really clear who is representing the defendants in these cases. Uh, most of the time, you'd expect a defense attorney to come out and publicly say something in defense of their clients. Uh, but this hasn't been the case. So there are little things like that also that are different in this case than the norm. Uh, but just generally in Mexico, it should be noted that uh, an overwhelming majority of violent crime, about 98%, is just not, not, uh, not solved. Why is there so much skepticism about these cases in Mexico? Well, there's that historic fact, right, the, the fact that most cases are not solved. Uh, but I think more has been um, AMLO, the president's treatment um, and attitudes towards journalists, right? After January, which was one of the bloodiest months in, in the country's history, the president has very publicly gone after journalists in his morning press conferences. Um, he really attacked one individual specifically who was reporting on the president's son's uh, shady business dealings in the United States and in Mexico. And he just kind of, the president, took it personally with him. He actually, in the press conference, had a, a printout of the reporter's salary, uh, somehow trying to, to I, I actually don't know what the point was. He was just like publicly saying where this reporter gets his money to try to discredit him somehow. Uh, but he has a very combative, almost Trumpian attitude towards the press. And I think that creates a lot of skepticism among the Mexican press corps. How does this lack of transparency and justice being served contribute to how dangerous it is to be a journalist in Mexico? I think it contributes in that People take notice. People take notice that if you kill somebody, chances are you you won't get in trouble for it, right? That that's sort of this culture of impunity. That's what it breeds. It breeds this um, reality where it, it's relatively easy to kill somebody and get away with it. Unfortunately, in Mexico, and for journalists, it puts a target on their back, right? In both cases, in Lourdes Maldonado and Margarito Martinez, they were both killed outside their home. The people knew where they lived. They knew more or less what their schedule was when they got home, when they left for work. That's kind of the culture that, that this type of impunity creates. I've been speaking with KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, thank you. Oh, thanks for having me, Jade. Really appreciate it. This week, KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser brought us a story about the problem some nonprofit organizations describe in trying to work with the city of Chula Vista, nonprofits that provide services to homeless residents, outreach to youth, and assist people dealing with food insecurity say they have given up on working with the city. They say issues like poor communication and late payments left them feeling like the city doesn't care about the work they do or the people they help. Claire joins me now with more on what she uncovered in her reporting. Claire, welcome. Thank you. So how did you first get wind of this story? 
Well, it first started um, because I was alerted to something that had happened at the city council, the Chula Vista City Council, which I describe in the story, which was this weird thing about $30,000 in CARES Act funding that looked like it was slotted for this nonprofit community through HOPE, but then it actually went to uh, the Chula Vista Police Department to help them um, pay for some of the traffic control they were doing at Community Through Hope's uh, food distribution events. So I just got a tip on that, and that seemed weird, and it kind of led me to looking into more of what was going on with that nonprofit. So then from there, you were able to see the issue was larger than just this one incident with this one nonprofit. That's right. So um, I did a request for communication between that, that one nonprofit and the city of Chula Vista and just saw a lot of the issues that they had been dealing with really back from when they first opened, um, as I described in the story, where they were told they could sublease from the local YMCA and then they were told that couldn't happen and then there were late payments and just uh, all these different issues. Um, and then I, I kept reporting and heard about uh, some other nonprofits with similar experiences, including uh, Love Thy Neighbor, which does outreach and youth cultural arts programming for underserved youth, and then uh, the Lucky Duck Foundation, which focuses on um, homeless services. And so I spoke with um, the leaders of both of those organizations, and, and they had kind of similar sounding experiences where the city might promise them something and then backtrack on it or it would just take a really long time and then they would end up not doing it. So just a, a lot of similar issues with multiple organizations. This is clearly frustrating for those nonprofits, but are there broader impacts? Yeah, so I spoke with someone from the Nonprofit Institute at University of San Diego, and she really described how cities rely on nonprofits to reach their residents. You know, she said that there's no way that a city could provide services to every single person in their city without using nonprofits just to reach people. And, you know, she also talked about they just actually recently did a survey of San Diego County residents and found that uh, there was a lot more trust in nonprofits than in the government and that, that people are maybe more willing to get help from nonprofits than straight from the government. And, you know, when you think about just during the past two years during COVID, all of the things that nonprofits uh, did for people from getting people food and supplies, then helping them maybe get the COVID vaccines, uh, child care services, education, so many different things that if a city didn't have nonprofits working with them, it would be really difficult to reach people. And so it just impacts people's overall quality of life pretty deeply. The city of Chula Vista did not respond to your request for its side of the story. Uh, did that surprise you? I mean, yes, because I always wish, especially in cases like these where organizations are, are leveling some accusations against the city, it seems like there's always two sides to every story. And so I would really like to hear from the city what their perspective is. They did send written statements, which I included some of in the story, but it's much more helpful to be able to talk through these issues and hear more of, of their perspective on it. So, I mean, I guess at this point, I don't know if I'm surprised because sometimes that's how governments, especially city governments, respond, but I always wish that it wasn't the case. 
Your story focuses on Chula Vista, but did these nonprofits have experiences with other cities as well? Yeah, I mean, you know, organizations who work with city governments will know that, you know, bureaucracy and slow pace is often just a way of life at at city governments um, and and governments altogether. But Chula Vista was really unique in not following through on these offers where they were making offers and then having to take them back, you know, possibly having retribution against organizations that didn't do exactly what they wanted, um, and then just taking a really, really long time to get things done. For example, Lucky Duck waited 14 months for the city to set up a tent that would act as a homeless shelter, only to be told that then they wouldn't use the tent after all. And so um, they said, you know, that's a unique experience to Chula Vista, whereas they've been able to work with other cities. Do you have a sense of how many nonprofits serve Chula Vista in the South Bay? Well, that's actually something that I wanted to look into more. Um, Laura Dietrich with the Nonprofit Institute at USD says they're actually working on a study right now of how many nonprofits serve the South Bay and her sense is that there aren't as many as, say, in, in the city of San Diego or other parts of the county. Um, and so then, again, that really underscores how important it is for the city to have good relationships with the nonprofits that do work in their region. Hmm. What's next on your radar in terms of reporting? Well, um, doing something completely different, which is returning to um, looking at more uh, police use of force cases. We've been fighting for a a very long time um, for the San Diego Sheriff's Department to release all of their past records on uh, use of force and officers who shoot people. Um, And I think we are finally getting close to them doing that. And so I'm going to be looking through there's just a lot, a lot of video, a lot of documents um, in each of those cases and doing reporting on that. Something we'll be keeping our eyes open for. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. Claire, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Roundtable. I'd like to thank our guest, KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson, KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser, and KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. If you missed today's show, you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jade Hindman. Join us next week on The Roundtable. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.